Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is simply titled, Leo. While there had been several bishops of the church at Rome who had been capable leaders and, under their guidance, had established Rome as the premier church, if not for the whole Christian world, at least in the western portion of the now declining Roman Empire, it can be fairly said that for most of the earlier bishops, the person was eclipsed by the office. Bishops Callistus, Stephen, Damasus, and Innocent I all added significant authority to the Roman see. But it was Leo the Great who saw the Bishop of Rome become what we might call the first real pope. It was with Leo I that the idea of the papacy became real. While previous bishops at Rome had certainly been theologically astute, as befitted their office, Leo can be classed as a first-rate theologian, arguably the greatest theologian of any who came before in that office and for a century and a half after. He battled the Manichaean, Priscillianist, and Pelagian heresies and won enduring fame for helping to finish codifying the orthodox doctrine of the person of Christ. Leo's early life is shrouded in mystery. The chief source of information about him comes from his letters and They don't commence until A.D. 442, when he was already an adult. Leo was most likely a Roman who became a deacon, then a legate under bishops Celestine I and Sixtus III. A legate is a special messenger, sent by a bishop to carry messages to civil rulers. Think a church ambassador to the king. Leo was so astute in his task as a representative for the church, that Emperor Valentinian III sent him on a special mission to settle a dispute in Gaul between a couple of feuding generals. This was at a time of great turmoil in the north due to the barbarian threat. While Leo was on this peacemaking mission, Bishop Sixtus died, and Leo was chosen to take his seat. He served for the next 21 years. Leo describes his feelings at the assumption of his office in a sermon. Quote, Lord, I have heard your voice calling me, and I was afraid. I considered the work which was enjoined on me, and I trembled. For what proportion is there between the burden assigned to me and my weakness, this elevation, and my nothingness? What is more to be feared than exaltation without merit, the exercise of the most holy functions being entrusted to one who is buried in sin? Oh, you have laid upon me this heavy burden. Bear it with me, I beseech you, be my guide." and my support, unquote. Leo's papacy faced two immense problems. First of all, the emergence of heresies threatened the integrity of the church, and second, the political disintegration of the Western Roman Empire. Leo offered three tactics in dealing with these difficulties. First of all, actions to provide essential church doctrine with a clear orthodox position. Second, efforts to unify church government under a sovereign papacy. And third, attempts at peace by negotiating with the empire's enemies. On the doctrinal front, Leo theologically refuted the era's main heresies and utilized imperial criminal prosecution and banishment to get rid of unrepentant heretics. Leo's finest achievement was probably the formation and acceptance of an orthodox Christological dogma. Though Arianism was in retreat, the 5th century battled with what's called Eutychianism, Now, we're going to get into this in more depth in a soon-coming episode, so for now, 
Let me just say that Eutychianism was one of the 4th and 5th centuries attempts to understand the nature of Jesus. Was he God, man, or both? And if both, how do the two natures relate to one another? Eutychianism said that Jesus had two natures, human and divine, but the divine nature had completely dominated the human, like a drop of vinegar is overwhelmed by the entire ocean. Later, it will come to be known as a label you may have heard of, monophysitism. Leo's manner of dealing with this aberrant teaching was brilliant. Rather than rely on suppression, he brought its main advocate, Eutychus, to Rome for a lengthy discussion, and after painstaking research and deliberation, issued a carefully written letter, the famous Tome of Leo. It set forth a clear exposition of Christ's two natures in one person and became the basis in 451 for the Council of Chalcedon's enduring formulation of Christological doctrine. This alone would mark Leo as worthy of the honorific great, but he did more, much more. He rescued the city of Rome from destruction, not once, but twice. When Attila and his Huns, known as the Scourge of God, destroyed the Italian city of Aquileia in 452, and everyone knew that Rome was next on the barbarians' hit list, Leo, with a couple of companions, traveled north, entered the hostile camp, and persuaded Attila to leave off sacking the city. Think of it. A bishop's simple word accomplished what the wanting might of the once mighty Roman Empire could not, convince the barbarian hordes to go home. Then, three years later, when the Vandal king Genseric was poised to do what Attila had been deflected from, Leah was able to obtain a promise that the Vandals would relieve the city of its wealth, but not burn it or slay its people. The sacking lasted for two weeks, but when the looters finally left, the city still stood and its citizenry, though badly shaken, were still alive and eternally grateful for Leo's intervention. He died in 461 and was buried in the Church of St. Peter. The literary works of Leo consist of nearly a hundred sermons and over a hundred and seventy letters. His collection of sermons is the first that we have from a Roman bishop. He declared preaching to be his sacred duty. His sermons tended to be short and simple. Leo was a man of extraordinary activity. He took a leading part in all the affairs of the church. While his private life is unknown, there is not a hint of anything that would give us a cause to think that he was anything other than pure in both motive and morals. His zeal, time, and strength were all devoted to the interests of the faith. If Leo saw the faith primarily through the lens of the life and outreach of the church at Rome, we ought to attribute that to his conviction that Rome was meant by God to be the home base for the church, its headquarters. As church historian Philip Schaff has said, Leo was animated by an unwavering conviction that God had committed to him, as the successor of Peter, the care of the entire church. He anticipated all of the dogmatic arguments by which the power of the papacy was later established. Leo made the case that the rock on which the church is built, mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, meant Peter and his confession of faith that set the cornerstone for the faith. Leo claimed that while Christ himself is in the highest sense the rock and the foundation of the church, his authority was transferred primarily to Peter. To Peter specifically, Christ entrusted the apostolic keys of the kingdom. 
Also, Jesus' prayer that Peter be strengthened so that he might strengthen others established Peter's role as leader among the apostles. Jesus' post-resurrection affirmation of Peter's call when he said, Feed my sheep, makes Peter the pastor and prince of the church entire, through whom Christ exercises his universal dominion on earth. But Leo went further. He said that Peter's primacy wasn't limited to the apostolic age. It endured in those subsequent bishops of Rome to whom Peter passed the authority that Jesus had endowed him with. Leo asserted that only Rome could serve as the center of the church because it was both a political and religious center. Sure, Constantinople was a political headquarters, but it lacked Rome's spiritual ancestry. Alexandria and Antioch were religious, but not political centers. Only Rome provided a sufficient political and spiritual weight to be the center of the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God. While Leo made much of Rome's place as premier among the churches, he himself remained, well, rather humble. This personal humility was offset by his determination that others would honor his office as though he were indeed a modern Peter. Each year, a special celebration was called to commemorate his ascension to Peter's seat. He took such confusing titles as Servant of the Servants of God, Vicar of Christ, and even, well, God upon earth. As an aside, if you've read my biography on the Sanctorum.us site, you know that I'm a non-denominational evangelical follower of Jesus. As I've shared in a previous podcast, it's been interesting reading reviews by listeners that I'm obviously a Roman Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox, or Reformed, or Pentecostal, or a few other flavors of the faith. I guess people mistake what my personal view is because I'm trying albeit haltingly, to treat the material in as fair and unbiased a fashion as possible. So I suspect here's what's happening in a lot of listeners' mind right now after sharing Leo the Great's apologetic for the primacy of Peter. They're wondering if I've gone RC. Let me respond to that by sharing this. While Leo did make a good case for the Bishop of Rome being the spiritual successor to Peter, What about the fact that Peter himself passes over his primacy in silence? In his New Testament letters, he expressly warned against hierarchical assumptions, while Leo used every opportunity to affirm his authority. In Antioch, when Peter played the role of hypocrite, he meekly submitted to the junior apostle Paul's rebuke. Leo, on the other hand, declared that any resistance to his authority, such as an impious attitude, well, that was a sure way to hell. Under Leo, obedience to the Pope was a condition to salvation. He claimed anyone not in harmony with Rome's see as the head of the body from which all the gifts of grace descended was in fact not even in the church and so had no part in grace or the body of Christ. Schaff wrote, quote, This is the fearful but legitimate logic of the papal principle, which confines the kingdom of God to the narrow lines of a particular organization and makes the universal spiritual reign of Christ dependent on a temporal form and a human organ, Another important point, uh, crucial to the idea that the Bishop of Rome was and is the spiritual heir to Peter's apostolic authority, is the assumption that Peter founded and led the church at Rome. There is simply not a shred of evidence for that. Sure, Peter went to Rome, But besides being buried there, there is no evidence he ever functioned as the leader of the fellowship there. 
The assumption that he must have been because he was an apostle would be like assuming that if Billy Graham visited your city and attended your church for a few weeks, he was the pastor, and that later pastors could then claim they operated in the authority and ministry of Billy Graham. In carrying his idea of the papacy into effect, Leo displayed a cunning diplomacy and consistency that characterized some of the popes of the Middle Ages. Certainly, the circumstances of the times were in his favor. This was the era of the fall of the Western Empire. The East was being torn apart by doctrinal controversies that we'll look at in a later episode. Africa was overrun by barbarians. The West was without political leadership, and there was no strong church leaders of the flavor of an Athanasius or a Jerome to lead. Leo took advantage of the Arian Vandals rampaging across North Africa, giving rise to the word that memorializes their career, Vandal, to write the bishops there in the tone of an over-shepherd. They eagerly submitted to his authority in 443. He banished the last of the heretical Manichaeans and Pelagians from Italy, and then in 444, Leo looked eastward and began affirming bishops to key posts, increasingly encroaching on territory that had been under the purview of Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. But Leo reserved to himself a right of appeal by lower bishops in important cases, things which ought to be decided by the Pope according to divine revelation, he said. We'll learn a little more about Pope Leo I, called Leo the Great, in future episodes, as he played a key role in the church life of the 5th century. As we end this episode, I want to again invite you to stop by the sanctorum.us website for more information about the podcast and to visit the Facebook page to give us a like. Do a search for Communio Sanctorum, History of the Christian Church. Leave a comment and tell us where you live. It's been a lot of fun seeing all of the places that our subscribers hail from. Until next time. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.